This is Soundtrack, a music podcast about the music that impacts our lives. Every episode is a conversation of how music has shaped and influenced one's life, because music is the soundtrack to everyone's story. Soundtrack is hosted by Kyle Lichty. Hey everyone, I'm here with Amber Reed. How's it going? Uh, it's going good. Sweet. We're here in Fort Wayne. We're chilling in your <laughs> studio. I don't remember when I exactly met you, but we've known each other for a long time. I want to say sometime in early elementary years. Yeah. I I was probably three, four or five. Yeah. I don't know. Somewhere in there. <laughs> and so we know each other because our families went to the same church. Mm-hmm. So Sunday school, regular church, yeah. all of that. The Our church put on musicals, all like just – All of it. Several encounters a week, probably, with each other. And then, like anything, things happen, and we go separate Separate ways. ways. And and then I remember running into you at Josh and Kendall's, and then having seen each other a couple times since. So Mm -hmm. it's cool to see each other again after all this time. Yeah. So you were born and raised here in Fort Wayne, just like myself. What was the experience of growing up in Fort Wayne like for you? Mm, It was interesting. It was really interesting. So my parents used to shelter us quite a bit as kids, I would say, because my family, they were adoptive and foster parents. And so there was always the chance of running into parents of somebody that was in our house or any of our families, because all of us kids that were adopted, uh, our families pretty much stayed in Fort Wayne from what they knew. And so I think my parents were a little more cautious with like doing things outside of the norm. I mean, we we still did stuff like going to the zoo. I think the Fort Wayne Children's Zoo is one of those staples that you yeah, can't get away from them. Absolutely. <laughs> and like Coney I, Island. I feel like Christmas. I grew up at the zoo. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I remember all the things that it used to look like to where you could like go in and like hold the baby chicks and they won't let you do that anymore because <laughs> Of diseases on your oh, hands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Animal protective rights and stuff. Yeah. I heard they changed a lot. Like the African safaris no more. Yeah, they don't have the safari ride. Like you can't get in the Jeeps and go through the safari. You literally have to walk the whole way. They put in this Sky Tram thing that I thought was going to be really cool because it sounded like you were going to be able to sit in this Sky Tram, which is basically a ski lift and go across the safari and look down. But I don't know if they were afraid of kids falling off along the uh, lions or something, but it literally just goes along the side. So you don't even see any animals when you ride it. You get to the end, you see Wells Street, and then you come back. So it's it's kind of lame in my opinion, but that's the the newest ride at the zoo. (laughs) The mall was something that was like a key point in my life because I think I worked at every store eventually. I worked at Hollister, I worked at American Eagle, I worked at Jay-Z Penny, Bed Bath and Beyond, like <laughs> a little bit of everything. What's crazy is like in our middle and high school years, it did not feel like there was much to do. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot more to do at that age yeah. now, which is interesting mm-hmm. given the it's only been a a decade or so. Right. What would you say is your earliest memory of music in your life? Oh, man. So like I mentioned, I was adopted. And when I first came into my parents' home, they had a hard time getting me comfortable. I didn't like my dad. (laughs) I was afraid of men. And so my dad at night would come home from work and he'd want to try to connect and bond. And this is before they had all the books and everything. And so he would literally take me and wrap me up in this like old red jacket and I would fit and he'd zip it up and we'd walk down to the light at the end of the street and come back and the whole way he would sing. He would sing old songs either from like the 60s or 70s. He'd also sing some old like Irish chanty type songs. Yeah. And so like that I literally is my first memory in life I feel like was hearing him sing and he still sings today. He still has a great voice too, but it was super comforting then and 
Yeah. It kind of spurred a, a love of music because of the comfort that was there with it. So was that something that he would also like turn the radio dial to those stations as well? And you would listen to that kind of music? Yeah. We had an old station wagon that we would ride in and it also had cassette tapes and stuff. I remember getting like Vince Gill cassette tapes and like putting them in and he had the Bee Gees and yeah. <laughs> he had some of like uh, the Beatles, just songs that he grew up with when he was out on the farm in New York. And so like that was his childhood and he was sharing it with us. And these are still things that you enjoy today? Oh, yeah. Like anything, anything my dad listens to, I will say is pretty okay. There are some weird ones. I mean, the Beatles have some really weird songs. True. They were um, on drugs. Yes. My <laughs> my dad swears that they were, but I think that's just oh. him trying to Christianize everything. <laughs> like he swears, like we'll say that there's no proof. There's no evidence. <laughs> I feel like they've talked about it I and know. admitted that they were doing LSD and yeah. other. <laughs> Shrooms, all yeah. the things, all the things. Yeah. So. During your childhood as well, Christian music is at the forefront of kind of probably what was allowed. Yeah. So a lot of CCM, Michael W. Smith, I would guess like Amy Grant as mm -hmm. well in there. Well, to a point because she ended up cheating on her husband and marrying Vince Gill. So Vince Gill and Amy <laughs> Grant were kicked out of our house, literally. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really have much of a choice as to what <laughs> I listened to as a kid. My parents, like I said, were really controlling. They would say that they were controlling now that we're older. But Michael W. Smith was one that we had on all the time. I think it's because he was notorious for having choirs, and the church that we went to had a big choir. Yeah. My dad really likes harmonies and stuff. And then we also listened to a lot of like church-recorded type of music. So... We had Nancy Honeytree, who was a part of our church. We had all of her CDs. We also would listen to the Gaithers. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much anything that could fit in with old person going off to halls on a Sunday morning <laughs> <laughs> after church, we had playing. <laughs> For those who don't know, explain what halls is. So halls is like the famous, I guess, just... There's cafe or diner. Well, there's like... There's four or five of them. There's so many locations. Mm -hmm. But it is like the go-to place to eat on a Sunday afternoon. Yep. After church. Absolutely. And they're conveniently right alongside almost every major church, yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So we'd get like one song in, and then we'd pull into the parking lot, and we'd go in, and we'd get our what is now called brunch, but we would always say it was breakfast. So <laughs> looking back now as an adult, what would you say the impact of having listened to those artists would be? That's a harder question, to be honest. I feel like to a lot of people, like when you think of your childhood music, you think of like stability or comfort. And when I think of my childhood music, I think of like, misidentifying myself because I didn't necessarily enjoy any of that music. Like the Gaithers, I, I probably won't ever put them on. <laughs> and so I always felt like I was missing something. Like I thought that everybody else that had their favorite artists and like knew exactly what they liked in music. And so I was kind of like, I want to find that. It's, I did later, but not when I was a kid. Yeah. Something that's a part of your story that I was surprised about is that you listen to country music. Talk about how that was a thing for you. I mean, thinking back, I remember getting made fun of first and foremost for liking country music and then also for being a little mixed girl that was listening to country music. Like those were the first things that come to mind. We had a carpool for church sometimes on Sundays because we would invite the neighbor kids to go with us. And one time the neighbor kids got in the car and I think my mom put in a Dolly Parton cassette tape and I was singing along and the girl said, you shouldn't be singing that kind of music because you're black. 
and you sound funny. So yeah, <laughs> it's not the best memories to be honest. Yeah. I mean, that's awful. I'm sure it had to have been difficult to process something like that happening to you. Yeah. It was really confusing because I had white parents and being a multiracial individual, I didn't have a whole lot of information about my history either at that point. It wasn't something that like six or seven year old kid is going to go up to their parents and say, okay, which one of my parents was black? Cause my parents are both white, <laughs> you know, and well, my adoptive parents are both white. And so I remember having so many questions, especially with music because of that one comment. And it wasn't the only time that that was actually stated. Yeah. I had growing up. I mean, when I was eight years old, I feel like that's when the Spice Girls were at their peak. Yeah. And the neighbor kids would listen to the Spice Girls and they would dance to the Spice Girls. We were all in dance classes at that time. And we had our own little dance group choreograph that we would do shows with. And at one point we did a choreograph number to one of the Spice Girl songs. I think it was just wannabe or something. And they were like, okay, we're going to dress up like the Spice Girls when we do this. And so I wanted to be Baby Spice because I liked Baby Spice. She was my favorite Spice Girl. And they said that I had to be Scary Spice because I was black. So, <laughs> you know what? What's so I'm not familiar with the names like of each of the, the individual Spice Girls, but even like just thinking on yeah. the name Scary Spice yeah. for her, mm -hmm. like that's messed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. Like you could have came up with something better. Right. That wasn't. Yeah. Unfortunately, like <laughs> they, I don't think they were thinking or maybe that was a part of her independence. That was a part of her like saying, you know what, you're going to call me or claim me this way. But I know another identifier for me being her was the fact that my hair back then, I mean, I straighten it now with a straightener yeah. most of the time, but I do wear my hair natural more now as an adult than I did when I was a teenager. But when I was a kid, it was just naturally curly, super mm -hmm. poofy. It was a calling card. People would literally identify me as the girl with the curly, poofy hair. And so Scary Spice also had really curly hair. She was known for her afros and just all this beautiful, luscious, like African-American natural hair. And to have to be someone based upon skin color and hair type was really, really hard. Yeah. How have you processed that now as an adult? Mm. Obviously it's a microaggression. Yeah. And, but I'm, you know, but you're still like a child when you're dealing with that. Yeah. So maybe the emotions came out, but I'm sure there's still trauma yeah. that comes with that for yeah. you. Definitely. There's definitely trauma. I think as an adult, I definitely process it and have had to go back and unpack it as an adult because as a child, I wasn't really sure what was happening. And when you're a child, you're always trying to find your identity. And so when people start to give you your identity, yeah. you learn to just take it. And so those types of statements and those, those conversations kind of put me in this space of being a people pleaser. Like if somebody knew exactly what I was, I wanted to know what it was. And I think part of that too was being adopted and in foster care. I always felt like I had a debt that I had to repay. And so if I was already in debt to anybody or anything, then obviously I was lower in society. So anybody that gave me anything should probably be respected higher than what I would think of thoughts in myself. So, which as an adult, I've definitely processed through that. I've gone through counseling. I highly suggest it for everybody because everybody has trauma. But yeah, as a child, I literally just would take those types of comments. I never said anything. I didn't speak up about my race until I was in middle school and then I got in trouble for that. Why would you get in trouble for that? When I was in the seventh grade, my parents went from homeschooling me to put me in a small private school. And there were only four black kids in this entire school. And I was one of them. And I was probably the lightest complexion out of all of them. And one of the girls 
that was in my class was also multiracial, but she had darker skin than me. And she cornered me in a bathroom one day, literally within months of starting school. And she said, what are you? She said, you're not white. You're not black. You must be nothing. And I slapped her. And so I got in trouble for slapping her, which I understand. Like violence is not the answer. But she also slapped me back after that. (laughs) And then I was crying and I was the one that went and told the principal. And so I was the one that got in trouble. She just got talked to. And then after that, none of the girls that were black talked to me in school. Wow. Yeah. Let's talk about middle school. You had this big impact of Hillsong Mm -hmm. as well as the youth band called Hillsong United. Talk about how that came about. Well, as you mentioned, it was probably because of church, but there was a big thing for me in finding individuality and um, independence because my parents had six of us. And so I wanted to be different than any of my siblings and when they gave me my freedom in being able to go to camp for the first time, that's when music really kicked off. And I started to see something different because it wasn't the same songs that we were singing at church. And I wasn't allowed to go to youth group for the first couple of years because my mom was very against. She said that youth group was where people hooked up and girls tried to find the right guy to do the wrong thing with. And so, yeah, I uh, did not get to go, but when music was presented at youth group or dancing or whatever, there was something that was different about it. It felt like everybody was at a concert at that point in time because that's when Hillsong was like pushing those the new boundary of music for Christian music. Right. And so it was my only experience with anything that could seem anything secular in any type of way. So I think that Hillsong was like my safe go-to. I was allowed to listen to it. And so I started to really dive into that. Was it more the original Hillsong or the United? United, definitely. Yeah. And was it because of the the sounds or what was lyrically presented or both? I think a little bit of both. I really did like the lyrics in the Hillsong United stuff. It was really simple. Their old stuff, especially like the words didn't have like this really deep theological, you had to like dwell on it and make you emotional. It literally, there were fun, upbeat songs. And then there were some that were just like, literally your heart was crying. You know, you could, when you cry, I don't feel like anybody says like a whole big spiel. And yet like when we go to church and this solemn mentality, a lot of the times I feel like they make it seem like you have to have this really long, like David Psalm-esque type of presentation to the Lord. And Hillsong was basically saying like, no, you can just simplify it and allow yourself to cry out to God in the simplest forms. And life seemed really complicated in junior high and high school. So that simple crying out was something that I was totally on board for. (laughs) You also were interested in a a girl band called Barlow Girl. Talk about that band. Barlow Girl was, was huge. I did some researching on them. And like even inside of the sleeves, they would talk a little bit like it was their journal. And so I felt like I had sisters that I always wanted to have because all my siblings were like kind of far away from me in age. And so having the the relative type, I don't know, music <laughs> or connection with somebody for the first time, I think drew me to them. But also their sound at that time for Christian music was kind of pushing the bounds of even being Christian. I remember some of the moms even at church, like not letting their girls listen to this. And I was like, yeah, my mom's finally like letting me be a rebel in some way. (laughs) And so Barlow Girl became like my rebellion against being the normal girl. So what was the, you were talking about it being relatable. Yeah. How was it relatable for you? Oh, man. I feel like so their big song that was really popular when I first got into them was Never Alone. And the song, like some of the lyrics are like, I waited for you, but you didn't show. And even right now, like when I was four years old, 
was the last time that I went to the um, center for all the foster and adoption cases. And you would have to go sit in this room where there's like a two-way mirror. And there'd be toys and books and things for kids to do, but it was a place for children to meet up with their biological parent. And my biological mom never showed, like ever. And so I think like subconsciously, my heart in wanting to know my history and diving into like that part of like, why? Why was I alone? Why did I always feel like I was alone? And then the song in and of itself said that I wasn't alone. And so I think that it, like, was a comfort zone, but also, like, it felt like I under- they understood exactly where I was, like, that wrestling of right. never being alone, but always feeling like I was just abandoned. <laughs> yeah. So high school comes around, and you really start to expand your taste. And couple different things happen. You are starting to get into heavy metal and screamo. You're getting into emo and as well as musicals. Let's talk about the the worst of the three, <laughs> <laughs> the heavy metal and screamo. How did that come about? How anything that a typical, pretty much preppy girl would fall into, a boy. <laughs> <laughs> Our high school had a couple different groups of guys that were all into heavy metal and they all had their own bands. And so the only thing that we would hear in the parking lot, like when you were coming in, wasn't like hip hop or rap. It was literally like this, like, like your car is about to explode type craziness. And one of the guys that I really liked, he was the lead in the band. He was the guitarist. He was the person that wrote most of the music. And I started asking him to, you know, burn me CDs because that's what we did back then. We yeah. didn't have like <laughs> your phone that you could just pull up Spotify. So he would burn me these CDs and I would listen to them like constantly just so I could know what he was listening to. And like I'd go to the shows. I started wearing, this is before skinny jeans were popular, like black skinny jeans and Converse and band t-shirts. I finally got a hair straightener. My hair was straight and super long. And Hot Topic. Oh, gosh. I wasn't allowed to shop at Hot Topic, but I did go to Goodwill that had secondhand Hot yeah. Topic shirts. <laughs> Do you remember any of the bands that you probably listened to the most? Chinese Express was like the biggest one because they were somewhat local. And then like Haste the Day. Paramore and other emo mm. acts were also a part of your listening habits. Talk about emo. Man, so I started getting super depressed in high school, probably because I was listening to, you know, hardcore screamo music. But <laughs> I started like really honestly disliking myself a lot and not really able to find an identity jumping around from like dressing like hardcore to sometimes being preppy to like anything and everything that I could get my hands on and so emo music started like to infiltrate my my music I remember LimeWire was the thing and I would go on and I didn't necessarily feel like it fully resonated with me, but there were times where there's a song that I'm that is like playing in my head as I'm speaking right now. It's like the hero heroine song. And like I remember just blasting that song. Uh, I can't even think of who sings it, but it was like the only thing that kept me from like feeling like I was fully diving into a black hole. <laughs> What's crazy, I mean, you know, just looking back at like our high school days with that emo, it was so huge. It was ridiculous how much of that was driving culture. I mean, Mm -hmm. just like earlier I mentioned Hot Topic, Skinny Jeans, it was a huge thing. But you had these hits from bands like Fall Out Boy, Paramore, Green Day, Blink-182. It was just like Mm -hmm. that pop punk, but emo. Yeah element to it was yeah was just huge why do you think it was during that time in our high school years man I think that part of the reason that it was so 
prevalent was because it it expressed emotion that we were told we weren't supposed to express. I think back then, I mean, if we go into like culture a bit, you you see a lot of toxic femininity and masculinity kind of starting to iron itself out. And so I think that emo music was like that middle ground where you saw like Paramore come onto the scene and all of a sudden you have like a standard where the haircuts start to look the same as the guy's haircuts, the, the sound of the riffs and even the keys that the music is in, they're all very similar to both masculine and feminine. Mm-hmm. And so like it gave all of us a way to like connect and not have to think about like, I need to be, I need to be a girl and I need to be super feminine and just listen to, you know, like your girl band's, like Britney Spears even and that kind of stuff where there was just a a straight line, boy bands, straight line. Then all of a sudden emo stuff comes out and it's like, there is no straight line. Everybody, boys were buying jeans from the girls section even. So yeah. Let's talk about musicals. So (laughs) during your high school years, what was the draw for you about musicals? One of the benefits of going to a small private school was that if you auditioned for the musical, you probably were going to get in. (laughs) I started loving musicals because of The Living Cross, though, with Calvary Temple, because, I mean, that was a full-on production. like, And it, I mean, was quality production for its time. Mm -hmm. And so being a part of something that large scale made me want to do stuff even more. And our high school, we did some really dumb, like not even book Broadway type of musicals to then moving into Broadway type. So we did the wizard of Oz my junior year and I got to be Dorothy. And then we did the sound of music my senior year. And I was Maria, which started a whole controversy in senior year with some of the girls because I shouldn't have gotten the lead two years in a row. Cause we should take turns because <laughs> it's a small Christian school. <laughs> But I remember feeling on top of the world when I got the second lead, just because I felt like that meant that I was the best of the best at our school, even and thinking like maybe I could go do like AMDA or NIADA or something and see if Broadway was for me. But when I presented those things to my parents, they were less than supportive because they said that the entertainment industry was full of just sin and like temptation, like all of the things. What was that like to hear that though? Mm. I mean, cause it's like you're, it seems like it's like a dream that's being prevented, maybe not shattered quite yet, right? but like a desire that's not likely to happen. It was really harsh. I remember like right after high school graduating and you know, that's when you have to decide on the college that you're going to for sure. And I had secretly applied to like IU even, and I secretly applied to New York, like Niata, and got into both places, but couldn't go. I ended up going 25 minutes away from our house, which they moved to the country when I was a junior in high school. And so we were close to Huntington University. And that was where they wanted me to go because it was a Christian college and it was close to home. And I was not allowed to live on campus, even though I was 18. (laughs) Yeah. So I went to uh, to college and I wanted to do music, but the only way that I could do it and it not be bad or secular was if I were into worship music. So I went back to like falling in love with Hillsong and like I made that my life's priority because it was the only thing that my parents really approved of. And eventually I was going to go to Australia and I was going to do the whole thing. I was going to become a worship pastor here in the U.S., potentially travel, all that kind of stuff. And Lo and behold, I was still dating the guy that was in the Screamo band, and he was supposed to go to Huntington with me, but pulled out because he had gotten an internship with a really good company and was on track to do things the back way and making six figures just by, you know, interning with like a tech company. And so our dreams split, but we did not in the beginning. Instead, he pulled out a ring and decided to propose and me being young and thinking like, all right, well, this is the only guy that's ever shown interest in me. I, I better just like run with it. So we got married when we were, I was 13 days away from being 20 and he was 19. And then 
a year and a half later, that love disintegrated. Yeah. <laughs> and then we ended up back together a year later. And yeah, music kind of died for a while. What are you still leading worship at times or? Not leading. So after I pulled out of college, I ended up working a lot of odd jobs and then going to beauty school. And I was just more so concerned with people thinking that I was still like the good Christian girl because I was that like perfectionist mindset growing up. And so I like let other people tell me what I was allowed to do at church and what my gifts and my callings and stuff were. And a lot of people told me, uh, I had one person telling me in particular that I was too pretty to be on stage, that I was a distraction for the men and that I needed to be behind the scenes. So, (laughs) which was kind of contradictory to what I felt like too, because I, I didn't get a lot of attention growing up. And so I was kind of just like, okay, cool. And I'm married. So I feel like those things shouldn't matter, but yeah, I have a lot of church hurt, (laughs) like a lot of abuse and stuff too from church, but yeah, as I think most people. Yeah. And I feel like being a non-white woman that just amplifies it even Mm -hmm. more. Oh yeah. I feel like, I mean, going back to music too, even with church music, growing up, being a non-white female who was adopted. If you think about a lot of the songs, especially the ones that became popular during the 2000s, for some reason, adoption and being an orphan became like this love language for music in the church. And so the best way for people to put themselves in a position of lowering themselves in God's eyes was to feel like an orphan, was to feel like the least of these. And the only thing that they could connotate, you know, was orphan. And so I remember singing songs in church and feeling like they don't know, like nobody here knows, but me, because I am, I was, I was abandoned. And like, also that doesn't mean that I'm the least of these because I'm not loved any less according to the Bible than all of you guys. And yet you guys are putting yourselves in a place to make me seem like I was loved less. Like I had to be rescued before I could be rescued by grace. And so it felt like a double whammy. And I started not liking Christian music for a while too, even. Around this time, you went through a divorce. Talk about the impact that that had on you. I was married for five years and there was on and off again in there. And then we had a child mixed in there at the very end. And for the most part, I think I was just trying to put together what life should look like. And so I listened to not only the American dream, but like the Christian version of the American dream, right? I married my high school sweetheart because he was a Christian. I let him lead our family and he pulled me away from anything that I did find my identity in that was truth about Amber. And I was told to abandon all of that, that she wasn't worth anything. Suppress. Yeah. Even. Yeah. Yeah. Suppress it completely. I remember being told that like, as far as my race is concerned, like that I needed to straighten my hair or that I needed to wear a certain type of outfit because that outfit was ghetto. Or if my curls were out, then my hair didn't look kept. Like I wasn't professional enough. And so I remember thinking like at one point, and it sucks to say this, but like thinking that black or African-American people just were not professional or put together or worth me even investing in getting to know because of the way that the culture kind of shapes and shifts everybody. And the, the black people that I did see that were successful, like, I mean, even just Oprah, right? Her hair is always pressed. She never really wore it natural. She always had her makeup done like a white lady's. She's went from wearing like these bright, significant colors to even wearing more of a like monochromatic outfit. And I thought, okay, well, if that's how the world shapes Oprah, then like this girl who's mixed of all these different cultures and heritages, then I need to just let whoever lead. And at that point in time, that became my husband. 
And then eventually I was unable to do that anymore. I had to find myself and I, I also wanted to find my history. And so I found my biological dad's side of the family and they happened to be black. That was a super uncomfortable time for my ex. It was uncomfortable for me too at times because I didn't grow up with their culture or their heritage. And so finding out things about myself and even finding out that I lived with them at a point in time, they did my hair, that I dressed like they did growing up in like big bright polka dots and neon colors and looked like I could have been a Huxtable versus, you know, a full house character. And so I think that when I started diving into that and speaking with my sisters and then also finding that I did have a little bit of gospel music type draw to me, they listened to hip hop and rap and R&B and they also listened to country and they were okay with it. Like they had no reservations about who they were. They were also, for the most part, same skin tone as me, but had grown up with both black parents. And so what my two older sisters did, and then my younger siblings, they grew up with their adopted family too, that was also white, but they were allowed to be black. And I realized that I had never been allowed to be. Yeah. I get this sense that around this time you were identifying the real Amber, the, the true Amber of who you really are. Being a people pleaser, like I've mentioned like a million times, because that is a part of my natural inclination is literally just to please people. I left that and I started asking Amber, what do you like? What do you want to do? And that also included what mistakes do you want to make? Like if you want to do something and you don't feel like it's the right thing to do, then what do you, what is that? What fits out of the natural parameters that you've been set in before? And so like I, when I moved down to Indy, which was the farthest that I could go since I had my son, was that hundred mile distance. And so my older sister lived in Nashville, Tennessee, like the home of music, right? And recording, music row, all that stuff. I started going down there before she moved. She had mentioned that she wanted to. I found out that they were filming TV shows down there. And so I'd drive down and I would go be extras on TV shows like Nashville, which oh, is wow. full of music. Yeah. I also got to meet Billy Ray Cyrus because I ended up on his TV show <laughs> called Still the King. And then because I met him, they pulled me to be a stand-in, which is basically you don't get seen on screen anymore. They put you there when the actors are like in their trailer yeah. or being brought to set. Yep. And then you literally just get to mark where they're going to do the filming for right. it. And <laughs> I was Billy Ray Cyrus on the side of the road peeing at one point. Like <laughs> he <laughs> wasn't there present, but it, he did end up like coming up to me and saying like, Hey, you know, I, you got this gig. Right. And it was because he had seen me acting at another scene when I was just an extra and to be seen for the first time as somebody that literally I felt I was completely being myself. Like I was walking into the bar and I was like, if I were to walk into a bar and I were to see like people having fun, I'd order drinks. I remember like bringing this other extra girl who was younger. And I was like, this is our scene. You're my little, I'm your big, I'm buying you shots. I mean, you're going to get effed up, but like, it's going to be a good night. And she was like, all right, I'm totally down. And so we like played out that scene. And then because of that, I kept moving up in the ranks and stuff. And then I went from that to going to New York on a whim when I didn't have my son and auditioning for an off-Broadway musical, an off-Broadway production of Rent actually, which was something I would have never done, mainly because my parents would die if they heard that I even listened to Rent, the musical, let alone if I uh, knew it all by heart and potentially would have been on stage doing it. But Mimi, the character in Rent, I listened to her songs all the time because I felt like it was a connection to my biological mom because I found out that I was taken by the state because she was a prostitute. And that she was a dancer and just all these different things. And so like music became a way for me to connect to pieces of who I was without having to like actually meet the people that created those pieces. Yeah, that's so cool. Let's talk about kind of a unique experience. You were encountering different DJs in Fort Wayne in just random basements. Yeah. Um, 
how did you come across this movement, I guess you could say? So before I had my son, when I was off from my husband, I started doing musicals here in Fort Wayne with the Civic. So they did Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I thought that was a safe one because it was a biblical story. So I got in that and then I just kept doing them. And as I was performing, I was making friends with all the people. The theater community is super thick here and they're amazing and treat you like family because once you're there, you're there. And it was the first time I ever felt completely welcomed by a group of people, like a clique. I didn't have cliques in high school because the school was so small. And Mm -hmm. even like at Calvary Temple, I always kind of felt like the odd girl out. Nobody really truly knew me. And as I was getting to know these people, they were showing me the people that they knew. So we'd go to house parties. And at one of the house parties, my friends were all completely inebriated. And I was not because I had to go home. And I remember this one dude was like, hey, I have this guy who literally has a full studio in his basement. And he's making tracks. And we need a female vocal. I just heard that you were in this play. So obviously you can sing. Like, let's let's do this. So we went to this guy's basement. He lived with his parents, which is really weird. <laughs> but he lived in like homestead area with all the really nice houses. Yeah. And literally had a full studio. He had turned Dang. a walk-in closet into a just a whisper room. And I went in there and they were like, all right, so just sing. And I was like, I've never just sang before. And they were like, you can just sing. And I remember them giving me the freedom to sound however I wanted to sound. And that was the first time too that I like had to figure out like, am I allowed to sound black? Am I allowed to sound white? Like, what am I supposed to do here? Like, they liked whatever I did though. And it was really fun. We would do that all the time. That became my go-to for fun. Instead of going to the house parties and getting drunk, I would go to the basements with the dudes <laughs> and we would write the lamest songs, but they were so good. I remember one of the lyrics that I wrote was like, got a bottle of Bacardi. Let's go and find a party. Maybe make me your girl or something like that. And <laughs> like, it was so much fun. How long were you doing that? Oh man, we did that for about a year and a half, almost two years. It was off and on too. So like if I combine it all, maybe three years altogether, I stayed friends with most of the guys. Two of them actually live in LA now. One of them is a co-producer for like Kids Pop. Okay. So like he's actually got a good ear for music and yeah. makes decent money, but Thanks. Yeah. So mid 20s, you're being a part of leading worship at a, a church. And you're also at a piano bar doing I'm assuming gigs there as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so talk about those experiences. That was such an interesting time. Because I would go from working Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, singing songs like Bang Bang by Jesse J yeah. and all of them, and like literally cursing in every other lyric to Sunday mornings, like showing up because it was a load in, load out church. So we'd have to get there at like 6.30 in the morning, help start setting up, and oh, then geez. go into like songs that they were writing as a church and... I finally sat down with one of the leaders and was like, I don't know what to do here. Like, I'm not really feeling convicted. Like the word that they try to throw out there when they feel like there's a sin or something just wrong. But I was like, I just, I feel like I'm living a double life. And so I need to figure out like which one fits me. And the funny thing is fast forward to now, I know it's like a big jump, but The church that I go to currently, they have everybody that's on their worship team. There's like five of them that actually make up a band called Casual Friday. They literally go to bars and sing and do all those same types of songs. And like, it's not a double life. Like they literally love music and they love people and they're able to go do those things, connect with people and then come to church on Sundays. And it's not bad. It's not wrong. And I realized like back then when I was doing the piano bar stuff, that's exactly what I was. Like I wanted to connect with people. Like I genuinely didn't care if I was the best singer because I know that I'm not. But I had so much fun getting up there and singing like Etta James at last and then Bang yeah. Bang and then, nice. you know, anything. 
because people would, you know, they'd have their drinks and they'd be super excited if they knew the song. And then the energy in those places sometimes could get really depressing. If you talk to anybody else that's ever been like a bartender, bar back, sing at nightclubs or anything, it can be one of the most depressing places in the world. Right around like the 11, 30, 12 o'clock time. And it's because everybody has had their fair share of alcohol, but also the people that haven't, they are literally the most strained people you have ever seen in your life. And so like, I remember thinking like, I can just do this fun song and like, it'll change the trajectory of the night. And that's what would happen. Like, they'd be like, all right, and now your bartender, your server, whatever position I was that night is going to come up here and do, I think another one I did was like Royals by Lord. Yeah. And like, it just would change the entire room. The atmosphere would shift. People were actually connecting again instead of disconnecting, Mm -hmm. which is, I think like the natural course of what happens when you drink typically. I know I am. I'm the the loner. I like my gin and tonic and then I go sit in a corner after I've talked to everybody (laughs) and I'm like, all right, done. What are you currently listening to? I love John Mayer. Like he is, I don't know. He's a poet in so many ways. I listen to him a lot. I listen to Regina Spector, Honestly, I listen to a little bit of everything. There are times that I go back through my playlists from high school and also from like my childhood, like listening to the songs. A lot of those were brought up this last summer because I did a road trip from here to the Grand Canyon and back with my dad and my son. And so we listened to all of the songs that I used to listen to as a kid with him. And it was actually super... I don't know, cathartic in some ways because it was just a freer version because I was choosing to listen to it with him rather than him forcing me to listen to it. (laughs) So it was good. Have you listened to John Mayer's new album? Yes. uh, Sob Rock? Yes. What do you think? I'm not sure yet. Really? I'm not sure just because it feels... I don't know. It doesn't like feel like it's from the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that. I love, so I love John Mayer because I love that he also has like, he has the John Mayer trio. He has like all of these different things where you can like walk through different stages of music. And so that soft rock type of sound yeah. is the one that was almost missing. He got, he brought out guitar every once in a while and it would make it feel like that. Like even in gravity, you hear some of those nice licks and stuff, yes. but the whole album sounds like that. Whereas I'm used to his album having different ups and ebbs and flows. And so it was hard for me to listen to straight. (laughs) That makes sense. Have you seen him live? Yes. What was that like? Oh, gosh. It was so good. It was down at, well, it's not Klipsch anymore, but it was down there in Noblesville. Yeah. And I mean, I'm pretty sure I got secondhand high, but (laughs) (laughs) so that probably made it better, to be honest. But I just remember being just enamored. Musicians are really hard to find, like full musicians, someone that writes all of their music, performs all of their music, also can engage with the people that are on stage. I feel like a lot of the front end acts nowadays, they don't engage with one another. Like they're their own person. Even uh, John Legend, I feel like is very much so consumed by himself. Whereas like John Mayer, he's the whole thing. And so, yeah. Yeah. Very much so a fan. That's cool. I'm curious, just given the story that you've been telling of of your life, how has music helped you in dealing with all that baggage? Hmm. I think it sometimes music was a blanket. Like it was my comfort zone. It was something that people couldn't take away, even though my parents controlled what I listened to as a kid. I at least had the music, you know, I could, I could hear it. I would write songs myself when I was little that were not Christian. We didn't have confession at our church though. So it was fine. Yeah, no, I think it's also been something that I could always go back to. There's always good music in my past, even alongside of the weird stuff. And so I think that it really just gave me a sense of stability It was my friend. It was my only friend at some points in time because I was allowed to have a radio in my room when I was growing up and I had my own room. I was one of the only kids that did. And I remember 
feeling like I didn't have very many friends. And so I would turn on the radio and all of a sudden, you know, like Barlow Girl or Hillsong or anything that was familiar at the time was was my friendship. And I was like, oh, there you are again. Yeah. What is it about music that is so appealing? Why do we as humans listen to music? I think music is a universal language. Even if the lyrics are in a specific language, the melody isn't. And so there's, I mean, people will break that down and dive into, okay, well, this is obviously new world or new age or whatever techno, you know, but at the end of the day, you can break down a melody into different harmonies and parts and everywhere around the world, you can put those harmonies and insert them and people connect. I think that's also what drew me to Hillsong. They at one point did like Hillsong United went around the world and they performed their songs and they did it in different languages and stuff too. And one of my first concerts was a Hillsong concert and there were Koreans to my right. I want to say that they were like some type of Muslim type. They literally were not Christian, but they were to my left and they were singing in their own language as well. And I also had Spanish people right in front of me. And so I was listening to all these different languages singing the exact same song. And I feel like music has always brought me to my actual home and like the peace that I have in my mind when I do think like I I believe in heaven. And so when I think of heaven, I think of like this just complete unified oneness between everything. And music allows me to connect to that while still being in the middle of crazy. So, yeah, that's cool. Well, Amber, thanks for doing this. (laughs) It's a long time coming. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack with Kyle Lifty. Each person interviewed has created a playlist of the very songs that have impacted their life. If you are interested in listening to their playlist, you can head straight to our website at soundtrack.fireside.fm. Click on Soundtrack Playlist and it will take you straight to their playlist on Spotify. If you like the podcast and want to know more, check out our Instagram at Soundtrack Podcast or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Join us next time on Soundtrack.